0: Hello, Andy and Nina. Great to see you guys. Hey, good morning, Jed. Hey, Nina. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, we've been looking it's, forward to this one.
0: Yeah, this one's pretty special to have you here um, to celebrate, you know, just an amazing amount of accomplishment. Um, you know, maybe we should just make you squirm a little bit here at the beginning, Nina, by just you know saying incredible things uh, about the, the the contribution you've made over recent years. You you'd be too modest to say things yourself, but you know, at least let let me st- dive in first, Andy, if that's all right. You know, yeah, yeah, and then and you, and you can pile on, right? But, um, uh, Nina. Uh, you know, what you've done over the last 11 years has just been astounding. And I think also a lot of people just don't appreciate just the amount of contribution that you made and how difficult the challenge was when you first started. There were people that were saying that perhaps the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools would not continue as an organization. Um, that's the baseline. And you came in and just very quickly changed the entire narrative and got the organization on stride hires a great new team and started making better progress on federal advocacy Um, and now we're 11 years later and people don't even remember that moment Um, and meanwhile other things you know through your 11 years growing the csp program to a level that's just so much higher than it ever was before navigating during a period when we've had red blue tensions as pronounced as anything that we've ever had, and then just building the whole strength. If there was any moment that showed what progress the organization had made, it was definitely in the spring of uh, 2022 when the Biden administration announced their terrible proposed regs. And I mean, the alliance was there and basically turned the administration around in ways that I think Will help the, the the movement for many many years to come. So, at least from my standpoint, Nina, you know, um, just an amazing amazing run. And I just want to thank you for uh, for everything that you've you've done. Andy, pile on.
1: You know, I think that was, that was well said. Um, let me think things I'd add to it. I mean, first of all, I think you have done a fantastic job, Nina. Nina is two really important things. She's a fantastic professional, very professional, gets the job done. Um, she's also a fantastic person. She's a great great human. Uh, and just a wonderful person a the sector and a friend and all of that. Um, and so I want to call both of those out. I think like what stands out to me is the problem that the national alliance has faced and, and you're totally right about the challenges when Nina took over. Um, I think, and I think some of those challenges persist now is everybody's always want to be kind of all things for all people. Right. And so there's been just intense cross pressure over the years. And I should say like, by way of full disclosure, I was a founding board member and I was a, board member of the organization that was, that was its predecessor. So I have some history here. Um, But people, it's, people have always wanted to be, be good cop, be bad cop, do really hard edged, you know, advocacy for charter schools, be really collaborative and work with everybody. All these things you actually, no single organization can do. And I feel like Nina has just navigated that with, with just a plume. I think most leaders would have either become like really frustrated um, and that would have led to bad outcomes or would have simply failed at that and i think that she just deserves just amazing uh just respect and credit for not only sort of just it sort of keeping that going but actually really accomplishing big things despite all of that um and that, that when i when i think about it, that's what i'm most uh that's what i'm uh that's that, that's what i'm most impressed by is the, i don't think most people would have pulled it off with the aplomb that she did and she has that combination and i said she's a great professional of like just really good political skills, people instincts, and just a deep commitment to improving education. I mean, I've known Nina for a lot longer than her uh, education in uh, charter school days, and she's just deeply committed that this system can work better than it does. And, and like people who, who believe that and show up to work every day to try to bring that to life are, are incredibly valuable. So thank you, Nina.
2: And thank you, Andy. Um, You know, Jed was on the search committee that uh, was involved in hiring me, and Bellwether was the firm that was hired to do the search. So both of you played a role in bringing me here. So I appreciate your support, and I'm particularly grateful to Andy because our space is filled with all these, you know, students who graduated from Ivy League schools. We went to Virginia Tech, and I think the. Values you learn at Virginia Tech and um, you know schools like that certainly helped me along the way in terms of hard work and perseverance and um, yeah and so I'm excited and also Andy we met when you were working at AASA back when I was at the Heritage Foundation so uh, the things we learned in the 90s uh, we could also actually fit in one room and one table to talk about education reform back literally then. all of that has changed over time so i uh, really thankful that uh, I'm doing this with you right before the holidays.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Nina. I think after the last few weeks, people might decide maybe they want a few more, you know, good students from, from good state schools, land grant universities. Um, <laughs> again, not actually. We're thinking about doing an episode on, on, on some of what's going on in higher ed. Um, uh, you said an interesting thing though. you said, like, we could fit in a room and we literally could, like, I can remember like a couple of Hill staffers from the Democrat and Republican side. Um, uh, Amy Wilkins, who then was at the Education Trust, me, Nina, trying to figure out there was sort of bipartisan ways through and literally we could fit in a small side room like at a restaurant. And then education kind of became this big bipartisan thing. And now I think it's a little bit more back to we're probably back to smaller rooms and restaurants right now as we try to figure out how do you rebuild a, a more bipartisan coalition going forward.
0: So, Nita, if you were going to talk about the thing that you uh, are are happiest about that's happened over the last 11 years or maybe one of the greatest accomplishments for the the Alliance, what what would you put your your finger on?
2: You highlighted a few of them, Jed. Certainly, the the focus we brought to increasing the size of the charter schools program, we didn't just do it because we wanted more money in the CSP. If you recall, and I don't know if you were in this meeting we held um, early on, we had brought all the different stakeholders that were seeking funding through this federal funding program. So it included CMOs, um, a few people who were running uh, charter associations, uh, those who were tapping into credit enhancement funding and authorizers. At the time, the program was getting about $254 million a year, and everyone was trying to get a piece of that pie. Um, So instead of focusing on that narrow pool of funding, we decided, why don't we just try to get an increase in in funding? And we were lucky enough to have some supporters in the House and the Senate who um, were supportive of these increases. So it came about through small, incremental increases over time. I give great credit to Senator Blunt. When he was um, heading appropriations for us every year, uh, he would put the money in, and usually with senators... Um, You know, usually their staff are the individuals who handle these things, but he himself was very engaged. I remember running into him at a reception where he pulled me aside and said, you know, I'm going to do it this way and that way. So the fact that you had a senator who was that deeply involved in the work was was great. Uh, And that's going to continue, I think, so long as there is demand and interest in the program. And there certainly is. There is also an interest at the federal level to increase these funding streams. When you think about it, the amount of money right now, it's at $440 million. It's a lot more than it was before, but it's still very small compared to everything else that is spent at the federal level on education and certainly other issues. Um, the other thing is the increase in the number of states that started to open charter schools. And When, when I started, Washington State had just passed a charter law through the uh, through their ballot uh, process, uh, and then that was found unconstitutional. So they figured out a different way to pass it through the legislature. These nascent markets, whenever you go into states at a late stage, they are it is more difficult not just to pass the law but also to launch the sectors. And so I'm quite frankly proud of the fact that since I came here, we were able to launch eventually in Washington State, in Alabama, in West Virginia. Uh, in Kentucky, although we haven't been able to open schools, and just recently in Montana, Mississippi also passed the law. They had an earlier law that wasn't generating any uh, or creating any schools, and that was revamped. And then we also made some improvements over the, over time in a few other places that had laws, but uh, not laws that were quite effective. During the pandemic, though, I think this happened by itself, but it's a byproduct of the sector that we had created. Um, we just released a new enrollment report that that basically summarizes 300,000 students enrolled in charter schools over the past four years, while 1.5 million families or students left the traditional public school system. That's a 9% increase for the charter school movement and a 3.5% decrease in the district-run schools. So parents are making decisions and leaving the district-run system, whether it's, you know, to a private school or homeschool, But if they have a charter school in their community, this is probably going to be the school that they first pay attention to because we're free, public, and open to all. So um, so I'm, you know, proud of the fact that it is an option that people are paying attention to. And just think of how many more families would be in charter schools if we simply had more of them in our communities. Um, And there are a lot of other things, certainly, that I can talk about reports that we had written uh, and publicity brought, attention brought to this diversity of the sector. Certainly that the studies, I mean, I would be remiss not to mention Credo's final analysis that came out right before. I mean, it just came out, but it's an analysis of data um, up until 2019. So when Mackie first started doing her research, she didn't see a lot of difference between uh, district schools and charter schools. The second installment of her study showed some improvement. This last one definitely demonstrate that charters are doing something right. And what was really refreshing was that the longer our leaders stayed in the schools they were running, the better they did in terms of the service to the families and closing the achievement gap, raising student achievement. Um, so, you know, what else do you do you want? I mean, it's growing, it's having an impact, uh, and it's gaining momentum um, so I, I'm extremely proud of these these developments over time and I and the and that the developments happen certainly with a lot of folks in the sector but certainly uh, I, I'm proud of the fact that we were part of those discussions or leading those discussions in many instances
1: let's talk about a little bit more on that that's I mean it's so interesting so charters like I, I mean and the advocacy conversation is is exasperating as people still use the language like of the first credo report rather than like a decades worth of, of new evidence and, and things we're learning and so forth. Um, but you look, you do see that the, the sector seems to be getting stronger and, and quality is improving. And we, Jed and I had Mackie on, uh, recently we'll put that episode in the show notes, um, uh, to talk through all that. So that's a little unusual. Usually when things expand in the education sector, quality sort of regresses, uh, mm-hmm. at least, you know, back towards average. Um, on vouchers, we're actually seeing that as these programs, these voucher programs become less targeted and more universal, the outcomes are, we're seeing you know weaker outcomes than you used to see with with um, with voucher programs. So just talk about that. What do you think that means for charters right now relative to other choice options, relative to where the sector's going and relative to the work that a national organization, national leaders, need to do and then and state leaders so that i mean that's like a like a three-part compound question so it's not very fair but like really really important stuff for us to think about uh with the sector going forward well
2: I, I lost track of the three questions but let me answer so this like quality
1: way. and scale the quality and scale is going better than you thought yeah. and better than some other choice options so yeah. how should we think about charters in that context and how should we think about like what we need by way of leadership and advocacy, either national or, or state or both?
2: No, I mean, that, that was a key point she made, which is that these management organizations that have had, that have had steady leadership over time uh, continued to make improvements. If they were not doing as well, they they, they improved uh, and became better. So that that's crucial. And it's really one of the reasons why, to some extent, some of our district-run schools are not doing well, because you have so many superintendents who are coming and going and shifting priorities constantly but if you keep the leadership stable the governance of a school stable over time in this particular instance it has learned from its mistakes and has has become better over time so that's huge and i think it's a great contribution actually to the education sector in a sense that if you just had a better governance model you'd be able to resolve a lot of the issues that both from an academic standpoint and Nowadays, also from a political standpoint. Um, Now, with all that said, the pandemic was a mess. I mean, our test scores and that of a lot of other schools are just not where they need to be. One of the things that the pandemic also demonstrated is the value of what our educators were doing by simply having students in our schools, the expanded school day, school year, the fact that they were a second parent to a lot of these students. Uh, became more apparent to us as a sector, the human touch element was really important. And so we all need to focus on that and make sure we gain the momentum that was lost pre-pandemic. And quite frankly, the other thing that we need to do is create new schools. In states like Arkansas, uh, the governor of Arkansas made a sweeping set of changes to its charter law that allow now for charter schools to open throughout the state. I don't know who is opening schools in Arkansas, but there are these new places that are ripe, in terms of opportunities, uh, and we need leaders and individuals who can come in, hit the ground running, and learn from those who have been doing this for a long time. So um, the fact that we've been demonstrating we can scale with quality pre-pandemic tells me that we can do it again, but it's just a matter of keeping that momentum and attracting new people uh, who are interested in opening schools and teachers who are interested in teaching in our schools
0: going forward. So Nina, serving for, I've been saying it's 11 years. Is it 11 or is it 10 or is it 10 and a half? Is it right right Uh, in that area? A little over 11 years. Oh, it's 11 years, okay, good. So I was right then, all right. So um, serving 11 years, uh, there's a long time there to learn and change. And I know at CCSA, some of the things I was thinking in my 10th year, I would look back and what, what I was thinking about in the first and second year was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, can you just point to a couple of things that you thought might be the case when you were in the first and second year? And by you know the 10th and 11th year, you're really thinking something different.
2: Well, look, I mean, when I came to this, and you sir, you were on our board for a long time, Jed, so you were with me on this, there was a lot of focus at the federal level, leveraging federal powers to its max and making sure that um, we were um, closing the achievement against sending kids to and through college. I think a lot of focus on college. And it wasn't something that I necessarily did, but I think the sector over time began to um, Uh, understand the importance of sending students to schools that fit their needs rather than to an elite school that they may not be able to graduate from or graduate with a huge debt, the focus on CTE. I think a lot of these things changed also our focus from as as an entity that was leading on the policy front. Uh, But the thing that I wish I had paid a little bit more attention to and Uh, And it was happening on its own, but it's sort of the state dynamic. So we have a model law. We rank states based on those those laws. uh, And we jump in in those places where no one else is around to pass a law or improve a law. We haven't played an active role in those places um, where others are involved. we're, We're servant leaders in some respects. So we go in if we're asked to help. We don't jump in on our own to do anything. And that's actually a good thing. But over time though, some of these inconsistencies have harmed our ability to grow or have had an impact on student achievement. Uh, And I wish that I could have found a way to better help the sector in those states where there were opportunities to seize or threats to mitigate. And um, and right now, philanthropy is also more focused on this, which is great, but they're also only in certain places. Um, so it's great to try to take some sectors from good to great and create these beacons of hope and opportunity to demonstrate the value proposition of charter schools in certain markets. But as a, an advocacy organization, as a political force, I don't know of a lot of other movements that are just focused on doing certain things in certain communities to create these great proof points and ignoring other places Um, so that's the one thing that i wish i had focused on more and but it's not too late and hopefully the next leader will be able to seize and and do more in some of these other communities
1: what's been the biggest surprise
2: Well, um, you know, the, the, this is not a surprise. I mean, those of us who've been dabbling in politics are not surprised by this, but I've been surprised at the level of, I can naivete to some extent around the politics of, of education and charter schools in particular. I mean, once, if you if you have an impact, you're gonna get pushback. The pushback is a sign of your effectiveness. But I have been surprised that how people see the pushback as a sign of weakness or a sign that we're not doing something well or something right and i think it's important to be really clear on what is it that you need to fix and you need to do your dirty laundry behind closed doors to address those issues there are certainly a lot of things that are need to be addressed in our sector um, but i Uh, I have, you know, I think a lot of our leaders are just here to run great schools and the politics and the noise is not attractive to them, which is as it should be. Most people teaching are not here to, you know, um, to to be in the field of politics or to pay attention to politics. But this is a political system. And as Shavar likes to say, if you don't like it, go run a private school. So uh, I wouldn't go that far. But I do think uh, I am sometimes taken aback as to how certain things that are really come to me naturally in terms of what you need to do to fight back uh require far more attention and and hand-holding and funding in some instances i mean if something bad is if a good story is happening nowadays you have the opportunity to tape it with your phone and publicize it through so many different mediums and uh, but that doesn't come naturally to most of us and i think the process of getting most more of our leaders engaged in the political discussions to get them to register to vote, to make sure that they're showing up to defend what they do or proactively push for it before they're elected officials. That's just taken more time and something that in some instances we should have paid more attention to at the beginning.
1: Is that because people are just naturally conflict averse, do you think? Or like I've noticed some of our funders, they make their money, they they do everything that you're talking about in terms of being very aggressive in the political and regulatory space and all that. And then in, in their philanthropic life, they don't want to have to do that. And so they want everything to be collaborative. But as you pointed out, this is a political space. So is its is it that? Is it just people are, again, people are naturally conflict averse? Is it something about education? Generally speaking, people in education, they don't want to fight. They, you know, they, they, people are here on all sides of these issues. They want to try to do right by kids. So like, why is that? Cause I totally agree with you. And it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. Do you like, so just take that like one more, one more click down, like, um, what, why do you think that is?
2: And yeah, I know you have an answer to this too, since you think about these issues every day, you know, for many of us, as those who are, you know, students of of this movement and and a lot of the researchers and academics in this movement the data was really important and there was a perception by a lot of the individuals who were investing in 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 this system that if you just showed up with the data if you could just prove that this model works and that you are able to close the achievement gap that would have that would be the tipping point that would then make everything else fall into place and Other public schools would join hands and emulate it this would be the case again if the politics were not part of the mix of course that didn't happen and in fact in those places where we had the best evidence that's when the opposition fought back even harder i mean look at massachusetts that ballot initiative that we were trying to pass was grounded only on lifting the cap in those schools that had wait lists in boston in a very narrow market that was serving black and brown students. And the opposition made it seem like this would take money away from all these suburban schools and take arts and sports from all these other public schools. So so, yes, I mean, I think the fact that we thought the evidence in and of itself would be enough to convince the opposition that this is a good thing or to catapult the kind of systemic change in the traditional public school system, uh, maybe you call it naive. But from a funding side, though, and I don't blame philanthropists for this. They want to go in deep, do something big in one place. But then if it doesn't happen, you know, in our space, you just need to do it consistently over a long period of time until you see results. So if it's just one effort on a given day, chances are, even if it sticks, you ha- you know, it might you know, go backwards after a while. If it's a political political win, certainly you have to protect it constantly. So not investing in the political side of the spectrum um, by electing the right people to to office, by protecting those who are sticking their necks out. Those things uh, have had a negative impact on our sector and things that certainly people are paying more attention to. But that that has nothing to do with education and what's happening in schools. And um, you know i think that's maybe surprised some individuals and the other thing honestly is most of the people who are running charter schools who are sending their kids to charter schools are democrats and the fact that the democratic party in some of these instances or democrats are not sticking their necks out has surprised a lot of individuals and but some of that is changing and i know that once you the, the great thing about our movement is the minute people notice a flaw they're quick to go and address it so i do think people are paying more attention to this and by giving um by paying attention hopefully we'll be able to also bring the resources necessary to fight back
0: you know i'm wondering if you can give us a backstage pass to what it's like to lead an organization like this for 11 years i know that now that i've been out of ccsa for five years there are certain anecdotes that i'm telling now more to the kids and to friends a lot of it just kind of fades away but there are these moments just that seem to crystallize, in my memory anyway, what it was like to serve in that role. Do you have a couple of just anecdotes, like moments you know you're gonna remember, you're gonna be talking about with your family and friends for the next 30, 40 years?
2: Well, Jed, your tenure at CCSA was very different from mine because you started at CCSA in its heyday. You had a lot of charter schools in the space who were funding the association, you had, Carrie Penner and Reed Hastings on your board. Um, so mine, you know, as you noted earlier, I came when the organization was kind of teetering and you know, funders were not sure if they would, they wanted to continue supporting it. So uh, for me, it's felt like drinking out of a fire hose the minute I started the work. And I've loved every minute of it. I think the thing that I will most remember is actually the day we decided to go home. home. They announced that there's a pandemic and you should go home. You know, as a leader, I I mean, it is, I can't tell you how many years I lost in the few weeks that when we were home and thinking about the ramifications of the pandemic, both as in terms of fundraising, am I able to keep this organization running, um, both in terms of how do you serve schools? um, How do you make sure that uh, these students are getting you know, the resources they need. And again, we were not in the business of running schools, but what can we do at the federal level to make sure funding is available? And at the time we fought for both SBA loans and ESSER funds. So a lot of the things you had to do in that period of time were very different than what you were doing before. So I'm always going to remember those first few weeks, certainly of the pandemic at home, trying to figure out what this new world means and how do we leverage it. And Um, And I'm glad that we came out ahead. And our sector certainly responded very well in the first few months of the pandemic. Um, You know, the the rally last year where parents and educators came um, to fight against the uh, Biden administration regulations on the charter schools program are definitely going to be one of the highlights, certainly both because it demonstrated that there is an interest in coming to Washington to advocate for something as obscure as a regulation. I mean, just think about it. Explaining what that regulation did was very complicated. Getting individuals who are not living our lives and are not thinking about rules and regulations, especially in communities that honestly didn't stand to benefit from CSP money. So the fact that they came, that it got its You know requisite publicity and all that was um one of those moments that i'm always going to remember um but personally i mean it's the team that um works for me that i guess i'm going to miss the most and the day-to-day interactions with them that um i I don't think there's one point in time but i I do think all the efforts that goes into building teams and certainly now adjusting to uh work and all that is, um, yeah, I I will always remember that. And and also making sure that, you know, the legacy of what we created continues. I like to tell people like, we're we're celebrating our 20th anniversary next year. So in a way I came here when the organization, when it was in its tween and teenage years, now it's Mm -hmm. officially, you know, entering adulthood. So um, hopefully uh, it can do great things and learn from the things it's learned in the past. and move the sector forward in in a very you know evolving um, world.
1: Let's stay on this point on um, uh, sort of political leadership. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Senator Blunt earlier. You've also had, you know you had like Senator uh, landreau Mary from Louisiana, Tom Carper, the former governor of Delaware. in the Senate was an enormous leader on charters. Like, so you you had like some really like, you know, bipartisan uh, folks who really were leaning in on this. Who do you see sort of as the leaders now? And what do we need to do? You talked earlier about the partisanship. Like, what do we need to do to maintain bipartisanship, especially in this time of of just really intense hyperpolarization?
2: So... We have some great friends, some Democrats, and strong Republican friends in the Senate in particular. This bill that we just introduced this summer, which uh, opens the door for CSP money to go to educators who want to apply to charter schools, uh, was introduced with the support of Senator Bennett and Senator Booker, as well as Senator Hassan from New Hampshire and Senator Schatz from from Hawaii. So these are all four Democrats. Uh, Senator Scott from um, South Carolina, Senator Braun from Indiana, um, Senator Cornyn from Texas. So, look, when, whenever we have an opportunity at the federal level to push for charter schools, we do have bipartisan support. But to me, the, you know, the federal government is a few steps away from what you know. It's a lagging indicator of certain things in some respects. So, I would pay a lot more attention to what's happening locally and make sure that our local elected officials first. You're inviting them to your schools that they know who you are through the stories and the faces of the movement that you are staying in touch with them and if they're your supporters that you're protecting them because chances are those elected officials are going to move to higher office Um, and i would pay attention at all levels of government at the mayor level mayoral level the city council level state legislative level governor level i would move from that point up and make sure that bipartisanship continues to exist at every level um, but at the federal level, look, I mean, I, you know, the Senate is, has always been our backstop, and it's going to continue to be that way because they're a little bit shielded from a lot of the ebbs and flows and the influence of a lot of interest groups. Um, that's not the case everywhere, but some of our biggest supporters right now are not, they wouldn't say they're big supporters, but they're steady hands in this process are Senator Murray and Senator Baldwin. These are Democrats who have also been. Um, you know, supportive of uh, the teachers' unions, but they're also good on our issue. A uh, house is a little different in the sense that it, you know, it's just more volatile and you have more action. And in that respect, again, in the in the house, we've had a good it number- It does
1: of- seem a little volatile over there these days. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> an
2: understatement. Uh, but a lot of Congressional Black Caucus members have been steady uh, signatories of our annual uh, charter schools grant program funding and I think in that sense, if the leadership of Senator, I'm sorry, if Congressman Jeffries becomes the speaker, that would be quite interesting because he is someone who is not just familiar with the sector and has been supported by many of our um, advocates and leaders and funders, but someone who also really has a personal understanding of charter schools. So if the house flips, it will be interesting to see what, um, if, if his influence and his position will influence uh, the party's posture on charter schools. What I'm most focused on, though, is the 24 elections. I know a lot of people want to go to sleep and wake up after it's over, but I do think we have to pay a lot more attention to the conversations that are taking place. A lot of these candidates are not talking policy, or they're just using sound bites. But as time goes on, and as these primaries um, move through, it's you know you know that the issue of choice is going to come up, and it's going to be important. For us to go in with the right questions, and hopefully for those who are running for these seats to give good, solid answers to questions of choice, accountability, and education.
1: On the Republican side, have you heard any any of the candidates who are particularly like compelling on these issues?
2: Well, you see the same debates that I see. Certainly, I try, I
1: try not to see them yes. actually. So that may not be <laughs> that may not be true.
2: Well, they all talk about choice, and school choice is definitely a buzzword. The Republican Party is, from a message discipline standpoint, knows how to use talking points very effectively. Um, What is sometimes disappointing is that those talking points don't always translate into strong policies because they tend not to be as focused on the federal role in education. That wasn't the case when, when I was working at the White House. Certainly, President Bush was a big education reformer and wanted to go down in history as someone who impacted education policy. But with that said, um, on the Republican side, they all have a viewpoint on choice and they talk about choice broadly. They haven't honed in on charter schools specifically, uh, but that's where they are. And Democrats haven't had debates that I know of. So um, we'll see how this conversation
0: goes. Is the secret to maintaining bipartisan support just not being perceived as veering in too far in either direction or and trying to have some centrist orientation that's not totally offensive to either side or is it having a mix of things where like hey there's an aspect of charterness that really resonates on the republican side Emphasize that in your engagement with Republicans and vice versa on Democrats. I mean, you've you've made this look pretty effortless, Nina. I mean, this when you've had Trump as your president, you have a base that had very different views uh, about all sorts of different issues. And you managed to keep us together. Um, How did you how did you do it? And, And how would you recommend for us going forward to to deal with some of those really vexing issues that are sure to intensify in the years ahead?
2: Well, I mean, you have some experience in this too, Jed, uh, when you were at CCsa, and um, you know it's important to focus on what you're trying to accomplish and not get too distracted by the political noise. So our posture has been one of just sticking to what we know how to do and not opine too much around issues that are not central to our work. Um Now some would argue, you know, and this is not the case just in our case, in our in our particular business, I think if you if you look at, Um, Other sectors, there's a greater uh, focus on making sure leaders are offering comments on a whole host of issues around their enterprise, not just what they're doing on a daily basis, whether it's, um, you know, and certainly it started after George Floyd and it's continued. And really, in order to attract uh, people to your workforce and to be seen as an authentic leader, there is a greater um, emphasis on being vocal and showing empathy and giving voice to a lot of these social issues because people don't feel that politicians are necessarily in a good place to represent everyone um so my my focus has been on focusing on you know getting this done and even then i you know there's certain been arguments about not pushing more around other things that impacted the students in our schools. Going forward though, I do think it's important if you are going to dive into any of these issues at the federal level, to understand your strengths and weaknesses first. And in many of these instances, if you're gonna advocate for Title I funding and school nutrition and other things, and this is what we currently do, it's much better to go in in coalition with other groups that know how to do that work well for a living then for us to try to become an expert in areas that are not just complicated, they're important for us for sure, but they're not our bread and butter. And so if you, if you start to, you know, advocate for all these other things that other advocacy groups are already advocating for and arguably doing a better job at it, if you also do that, first of all, you're too small. So your voice is not necessarily going to register. And it will potentially take away from the other thing that is really unique to you, which is just charter school policy and politics. Um, But right now, we're dealing with it by joining coalitions, like the Community on Education Funding is one of the groups that we belong to. Um, But there are going to be other coalitions that are going to be formed. And we should not just be a part of it, but also, in many instances, maybe lead the coalition and be a more active participant of it, especially if it's an issue that impacts our families.
1: That's a really interesting strategy because traditionally a lot of those coalitions have been fairly hostile, cold, indifferent to hostile. And so that's a, I mean, that's a sign of the growing size of the charter movement and in in some cities, how it's instrumental and in other places how it's just pretty significant in terms of, uh, in terms of its size and, and, and scale. And so, that, if, if over the next 10 years, charters emerge in a leadership role across these coalitions, that does seem like it has the potential to really sort of change the politics uh, around the issue and change how, how charters are perceived and make the job of this, the sort of reflexive opponents that much harder. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> you think we going to get to a place where it seems like you could have a dynamic. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about the Jeffries. who it does seem like if, if you had if someone you know forced you to bet a thousand dollars on who the next speaker of the house was going to be, be, well, actually I shouldn't say that because we probably there'll probably be a couple more Republican speakers between now and and November but, <laughs> um, after the election. The next speaker after November, you know, it, it seems like things are lining up pretty pretty well for him. Um, and some other leaders who behind the scenes, like Patty Murray, people don't, you know, think of her as like a charter school champion, but, you know, she runs she runs her committee pretty effectively with, um, uh, yeah, I think I forgot how you said it, but basically like stability and, and predictability around things. Um, so is there is there a scenario you see where you essentially, you'll have all the big fighting the people, like the unions everybody gets to have their big public fight, but like behind the scenes, well, they'll actually be like a fairly, just just a fair amount of like you know just path dependency for charters kind of moving forward and is that a pretty is that a pretty good outcome in the big scheme of things um, let people have their theater but charters actually get the policy and the resources that they need
2: oh yes I do I mean I think to again the Senate, again, it's hard to predict a year in advance. I think our politics and everything that's happening is so different from what's happened before. So whenever people make these broad predictions, even around the presidency, based on today's polls, I just have to question whether you can really count on what people are saying right now to guess at what's going to happen next year. But look, the one big benefit of charter schooling is that these are created at the state level. So the federal government can have some influence. And it has had influence because Bill Clinton started talking about charter schools on the campaign trail as an idea before there was any charter anywhere. It was just maybe one in Minnesota. And he talked about it ad nauseum. That's highly unusual because he was a wonk and he was interested in ideas and education. Back then, it was cool to be an education governor. So he talked a lot about it. So it's usually not the norm for someone at the federal level and certainly a president to talk about something that hasn't started to brew at the state and local level. The fact that all all of our laws are created at the state level shields it from any kind of federal influence. The thing you have at the federal level, though, is the bully pulpit, the fact that there is the charter schools grant program, which has now been around for quite a few years. When something has been around that long and has a constituency, it's hard to get rid of it. So I'm not worried about the CSP. But if you want to grow it, if you want to know turn it into an engine that's driving um not, not the csu but if you want chartering to be part of the discussion around you know education reform policy issues of economic revitalization chartering and the charter school movement education can be part of a whole host of other discussions that our country is dealing with and i would hope that whoever becomes president next and whoever is leading these parties pays attention to that because if you get education right, all these other problems go away. And certainly a lot of people in our movement are doing some really interesting things in their communities that go above and beyond just running a school. So so I think regardless of who's in power, chartering is going to have a seat at the table. But it's going to be up to us to constantly resell the value proposition and be visible can't just say okay well you're doing this thing really well and the academic performance is good and look at how many kids were graduating and assume that people at the federal level know who you are and what you do and how well you do it so now unless there is a huge sweep and you all of a sudden have a lot of you know and jed was witness to that in california um, i think federal is always going to be this way you may not see a lot of things happen and that's the case right now bills are not moving you just you're basically looking at appropriation cycles, and watching the theatrics. Um, so anyway, I would focus most of my political energy at the state local level, especially in those places where there is forward momentum to make positive change bring about. And I would also, quite frankly, pay attention to that 28th presidential election, because there are some formidable governors on both sides of the aisle who are poised to run for office then, and those individuals right now, if you look at them, if you were to take Shapiro, polis you know these individuals just are good on charter schools and a whole host of other issues and i think by then um you know we're talking about a very different world of course but i think our odds going to be better in terms of leaving again at the national level
1: yeah i think you're right the 24 election is highly consequential but the 28 one seems much more interesting in terms of different theories of government and the, on both sides of the aisle, the cast of characters who might make a run for it and so different governing styles and philosophies. Um uh seems 28 just seems much more interesting than, than... I don't
2: think the punts way down. I mean a lot can happen between now and then, of course, but
0: um I mean I know we're running out of you know, we only have a couple more minutes here. I, I I'd love to just hear you push us on something. Um is there any one area where you're where you would say, "Hey, this is what we haven't figured out yet," or this is what we've struggled with in the, over the last decade, or this is the you know one of the central weak spots that we need to improve to be able to k- stay on the trajectory that you're talking about here. Is there any place you you push charter folk in particular?
2: Um, you know, look, I do think paying attention to the pipeline of talent—that's uh, not something that we necessarily are involved with at the National Alliance, but you can have, you know, I was talking to a charter school leader in Texas after all these ESSER funds were distributed and, you know, certainly the other sources of funding that philanthropy and other entities made available. And I was like, okay, so what can we do to help? Because well, for the first time, I don't really, money is not my problem. I just can't find people to teach in my classrooms. I I don't have enough bus drivers. So, you know, this could be another piece of legislation that attracts people to just teach in schools and especially in needy communities and more specifically in innovative public charter schools but i do think if we want to stay at the forefront of educa- education reform and innovation um, we knew, we do need to pay attention to who are we going to attract and how quickly can we get them to hit the ground running in communities that are not as familiar to us as past communities So as I mentioned, places like Arkansas and Utah and Iowa. Um, So I would pay a lot more attention to that, because all the policy and politics, I mean, these things are par for the course. They're always going to exist. And groups like ours and state associations and others are going to have to do a better job of mitigating the risks and leveraging opportunities. But on the education side, uh, fueling the talent pipeline of the next generation of leaders, and making sure they don't make the same mistakes that previous leaders made is going to be really important. And I don't know who's paying attention to that right now. Um, and then on the political front, as I said earlier, I mean, I do think there is a greater need to draw dollars to C4 efforts. I know there's no tax deduction attached to it, but you can see the fruits of your labor much faster when you invest in a uh, C4 activity, uh, whether it's an election or some other political activity. And I think we need to uh, do more. And in many states, the cost of doing these things is not as high. Uh, so if you go to Mississippi, for instance, so I think paying attention to some of those um Dynamics is going to be hugely helpful, especially if it's in service to some of our rising Democrats who are, again, uh, sticking their necks out and could suffer huge consequences. Thank you. We are almost at time. Yet. I know you had
1: one. Yeah. You have a you have a great final question for for Nina that I'm very interested to hear the answer to as well.
0: I was going to ask you this the Tim Ferris question. I don't know Nina if you listen to Tim Ferris at all, but he often asks his uh, his guests the billboard question at the end of his interviews, which is if you had a billboard and you could put a, you know, a few words on something to broadcast out into the universe, you know, what would that billboard say? And it just seems like a moment to ask you a question like that. If there's something that you would want the charter school world to know or more broadly what what i mean yes free public and open to all okay great (laughs) but beyond that what's the uh do you have any just general message that you could summarize for for our world i think my billboard would be
2: you know the Honestly, I don't. I don't mean to summarize it this way, but it's you know the, the, this is the ticket to the American dream, and if you wanna if you want a challenging job and have some fun along the way, this is the sector that you should get attracted to. That's too many words for a billboard, so I'll think about and give you a better answer. But the message needs to be aspirational for people to get drawn to it, and. And to me, this movement and everything we do is about offering the door to not just equitable access, but to some extent, equitable outcomes in a way that boosts everyone into excellence and a future that's better than the one that they're currently living in. So that would be the way the billboard would, some of the words that would pop up and hopefully with a lot of bright colors.
0: about access to access to dreams or a pathway to dreams right. or something that charter schools provide hmm. yeah and our
2: schools truly are i mean it is about fit it's about bringing the potential of every child and the uniqueness of every child so um so those are the messages that i think we need to talk more about and ones that resonate with just about every family and when you talk to the average family they're not interested in charter schools or private schools or public schools or magnet schools they just want a great school and i'm proud of the fact that our schools are some of the most innovative public schools out there that are striving to meet the unique needs of our families
1: yeah and our families still believe in the american dream people in our sector you know spend hours in workshops debating you know whether you're supposed to talk about the american dream or not but when you're actually out in communities and there's plenty of surveys really to share has done work on this to show like the the people we're serving they believe in it they want it and they deserve it and i feel like nina your life is a little bit you you could have lived the american dream and the promise of this place and and so i think that was such an interesting way for you to uh to end it so i just want to say thank you for your leadership your commitment your friendship like the sector is is lucky to have uh lucky to have leaders like you and i think a lot of people are excited to see what's next for you well
2: thank you andy mm-hmm. and thanks so I- much data yeah, no, I was just thinking about this American dream story. This year marks the 40th anniversary of when we moved to the United States. And it's also the 30th anniversary of when I became a citizen. Um, so that's, you know, it's a big year, not just because I'm leaving the National Alliance, but for those two reasons, it's also the year that my daughter went to college. So. A lot of change afoot, and I'm excited about what's ahead. And I know that whatever I do, I'll still be in touch with both of you, and hopefully get
0: back on wonky folk one day.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we love you're welcome back That'd anytime. You have a standing invitation.
0: <laughs> that would be great. All right, thank you so much, Nina, uh, and both you guys have great holidays. I look forward Happy to holidays. talking to you guys soon. Yeah, you will be back in the new year. Bye. Bye, bye. Bye, bye.